The Sydney Opera House will next month play host to the sixth annual dance rights competition. Since its inception in 2015, more than 900 participants and 68 dance groups have taken part in the event. Dance rights began as an opportunity to encourage First Nations communities to preserve, practice and give value to their cultural heritage, as well as revitalise Indigenous leadership. However, this year, due to the impact of COVID-19, the festival will go ahead as a digital event broadcast on social media. Rhoda Roberts is the head of First Nations programming at the Sydney Opera House and she joins me now. Rhoda, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me, Larissa. Now, for people who aren't on top of this, can you tell us a bit more about Dance Rights and why it was formed? Yes, well, Dance Rights was really an initiative about reclamation and ensuring that the traditional aspects of our culture were kept alive and revitalised, I guess. But the big thing was that in the first few years, we started seeing each year with at least 300 to 400 performers and the dance groups just kept increasing. And this year, we did want to continue that momentum You know, it's so important for our communities. It really shows us the intergenerational exchanges that occurs. You've got elders and custodians who remember the old song lines or the dances or indeed the costumes that they wore, the right ochre markings and so forth, passing them on to the next generation in a really culturally safe space. It is a competition, but most of the entrants see it as a great gathering. I know many people are going to miss not coming to the Opera House this year, but, of course, with COVID, we've had to rethink. It's been pretty exciting, Larissa, because we've got communities that have never entered before because of the distance, whereas the digital platform has made it really accessible. I was going to ask you too, because of course the performing arts sector has been really challenged by COVID. So you must have gone through a process of deciding whether to go ahead or not and then making the decision to go online. How did you come to this decision and what work's gone into this planning since it's such a new way of doing things? You're right. It is such a new way of doing things. And you can imagine for many of our community groups, there is that fear of the internet. There's that you know, ensuring there's a certain safety as much as you possibly can, but making sure appropriate material and cultural sensitive material was observed and all the obligations that we carry when we do this sort of work. So we talk to the communities we work for and across our team, and there was just such excitement that people still wanted to gather and dance albeit on their communities in lockdown or in regional and rural areas. And so we decided to go ahead and make it a digital experience this year. And surprisingly, we got some extraordinary feedback. There was one particular old gentleman who's a very famous artist. He basically said, I'm not going to be alive next year. And I can use dance rights to make sure my song line is seen. So for my coming grandchildren, there'll be an archive that they can access when it's ready. Oh, isn't that amazing? I was going to ask you, you've alluded to the fact that by having dance rights on the digital platform and doing it the way you're doing it, you've actually given 
access to people who wouldn't otherwise have it. But at the same time, when you've put this on in the past, it's been this enormously important cultural gathering. As you say, it's a competition, but it's more than that. It's a coming together. Are you thinking forward about how you might mix these methods of what you're gaining through this digital platform approach, but also obviously wanting to hold on what's very precious about people coming together physically? Yeah, you know, it's opened up so much thinking outside of the box, really. My greatest aim is that our rights and our inherited birthright of dance and song and song cycles is maintained. And ensuring, too, that there's a safety to it. We know when things go on the internet, it can be quite, you know, the appropriation of material. But... The most exciting thing was the accessibility by having all our Aboriginal media film crews across the country going into the communities that they're actually affiliated with. So there was a sense of trust and indeed ownership. And so the footage we have, some of it will go, of course, onto our heats when we screen them on our digital platforms and the finals are being screened through NITV but we have all this other material that we'll be able to archive and give back to those community groups. It also has enabled us to ensure that community groups have footage that they can then promote themselves with in their own communities and get work and all those sorts of things that come with being a performer. So it's really shifted, but at the very core of what we do, I guess is that advice from our cultural guides and custodians is about the purity of the traditional dance. How many groups are taking part this year and how diverse is the lineup? Oh, well, we had 38 dance companies registered. That doesn't seem like a big number, but when you consider that some dance groups have 20, 30 people in them, it's a huge amount of performers. We're actually going with our heats with 28 groups that have been filmed and the diversity is amazing. You know, this has been the incredible thing, the accessibility. So we have groups from Arnhem Land. We've got groups from Balgo, Warman, the Kimberley. The only place we don't have groups from, sadly, is Victoria. And we really wanted to try and do that. But, of course, with their whole state being locked down, it was virtually impossible for those groups to gather and be filmed. So we don't have representation this year from Victoria. We've got an increase with Torres Strait Islander groups from Banagher on the Australian coast right over to Saibai Island, which is really exciting because then people will see also the real diversity amongst Torres Strait Islander dancing and the stories they're telling. An important component for the judging of the competition does rely on reclamation and revitalisation of traditional crafts. Why is this aspect of the performances given such priority? You know, we saw a project many years ago in New South Wales where there was the reclamation of making canoes from our trees and it had such a sustainable and healing outcome across the communities that were involved. So we've been encouraging dance groups and we saw a few last year where the old men are taking young men out, teaching them how to make spears, shields, things that are relevant to their own particular country. And also we've seen a huge growth with the reclamation of weaving and it's important to us because it does show that 
you've got young and old working side by side together and dancing on country. And those craft practices, we learnt a lot from looking in the early years when we were developing dance rights, looking at the history of the powwow movement in the States and Canada and the kapahaka in New Zealand. And those competitions advised us that the craft making was actually the key of the sustainability and the pride when you have your own, you're not using Western materials, you're going back to your organic practices. And look, truly, to sit and watch an old man teach a young man how to make a spear, that young man feels pretty proud. And I have to say the thing that moves me the most and what this year has just been phenomenal is every group we asked because we wanted to do a big collage of how diverse in the areas that people are coming from. So everyone in their own language do a really quick little welcome of the country they were on. But what happened was we were blown away by, and particularly the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds in the dance companies. They talked in language. It was just extraordinary for like three or four minutes actually explaining about the story of country. And these were men from Gosford to, you know, Mount Druitt to the Kimberley. And to hear them talk with such pride of that ancient mother tongue that was once outlawed in this country and their grandfathers were sent to jail for speaking it to see this next generation have such a understanding of the nuances of language. It just gives it another layer, and I know there are older men and women involved in this year's dance rights, and many of them have said they never thought it would be possible to hear their mother's tongue in their lifetime. It's really clear from what you're saying how important this is to First Nations Australians. But from your perspective also when you put this on, what are you hoping a non-Indigenous audience will take away from dance rights? That is such an important question, particularly as we are in such a change in our environments and dialogues these days when we've seen what's happened with the BLM movement and and the shift of the narrative. And I think dance rights is actually for everyone. It's a wonderful space for our people to feel empowered and show their pride and diversity. But at the same time, I truly believe the DNA of the cultural fibre of this country is our culture. It is our advantage. And I just think that when more and more people see that it's not just about throwing on ochre and doing a smoking and a shaker leg, the dance is so much more and the complexity of the stories and the kinship. I think all Australians, once they understand just an element of that will be as proud as we are because this you can only see in this country. We're the oldest race. Nobody else has what we have. And when Australians realise that we are hosting the oldest culture, adapting, surviving culture, I think there too will be that pride. Have you noticed, obviously, sitting where you are, curating across the areas you curate, have you noticed a increasing interest from mainstream Australia in Indigenous cultural performance? And if so, where do you think that's coming from? You know, it's funny. They always say, once you tasted the food, then you want to know about the people. And I think there's been such a shift 
in the knowledge of our foods, our seasons, the way we manage country in the last three or four years, we saw the dialogue occur after the fires and the discussions of fire stick mosaic burning, the understanding that we have six seasons in most of our communities, not four, the knowledge that goes with maintaining land. And I think there's been an escalation of people you know, wanting to use Indigenous foods and plants in their cooking and growing in their properties. I think once people have a taste of that, it almost opens them. And I think most Australians really do want to have an experience. But I think a lot of people just don't know where to begin or how to go about having that experience. And that's what Dance Rights does. Well, you've developed a really important cultural corroboree and thank you so much for dropping by this evening, Rhoda, and letting us know how you've been able to navigate the COVID-19 world to ensure that those stories are still being told and shared. Look, thank you for having me on Speaking Out. Rhoda Roberts is Head of First Nations Programming at the Sydney Opera House and Dance Rights 2020 will be broadcast on the Sydney Opera House social media channels, Facebook and YouTube, and the finals will be televised on NITV on the 21st of November.